0: to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with my co-host, John Kiriakou. We're going to go against the grain for another two hours today, and we've got a lot. I we got to find a different way to say that, but we have a lot to talk about. We have, yeah. many, we have many things to discuss. We do. Um, we have some economic news that we've been waiting for, so we've got the the data. We've got the spin. We've got moves in the U.S. and in Europe, where uh, central banks have raised rates again. And uh, concurrent with this news about GDP growth, we also have some news about uh, corporate profit, which I feel like uh, should be part of every economic conversation we're having right now, especially when we start talking about inflation and growth and things like that. So we're going to get into that and what it means. But, you know, it got to be Okay, news for the Biden administration in terms of the headlines that this uh, third quarter GDP is getting.
1: Yeah. You know, this is one of those numbers that everybody's going to try to spin. Mm -hmm. The annualized number of two point six is fine. Mm -hmm. Great. Um, But it doesn't tell the whole story. Uh, I'm going to mention later on with a guest that um, the chief U.S. economist for Bank of America says, That because of the strong dollar, it has skewed international trade numbers, which has artificially inflated that number of 2.6 and artificially inflated the number of 0.6, which is what the quarterly uh, growth rate was. So are we still in a recession? Maybe, probably. Mm -hmm. It's flat either way. So not great numbers for the administration. No.
0: Um, We are going to talk about something that doesn't get as much attention as it should, but the war on terror in Africa. Yeah. The quiet one and what its effects have been. Shockingly enough, uh, an expanded U.S. presence in Africa has not led to a decrease in violence. Imagine. strange. Yeah. Um, I think it's especially important now to look at what our track record has been so far uh, because— You know, more and more we are hearing uh, complaints that it is Russia that is destabilizing West Africa. Right. Uh, And so it's probably pretty important to look at the state of play right now. Uh, We are going to talk about what Barack Obama had to say about Ukraine. It sounds a little bit like that Progressive Caucus letter that got withdrawn. Not completely the same, but it does sound a little bit. And Mm -hmm. I don't know that... Uh, you know, that Obama got uh, canceled for being a Putin lover (laughs) after his most recent podcast appearance. So we'll get into what that means. Um, We had a a foreign policy speech by the Russian president that we are going to get into. Uh, We have some, I mean, sorry, this headline in foreign policy, Iran is now at war with Ukraine. Like, if that's the the criteria, we're already at war with Russia. If the criteria is... uh, selling a lot of weapons to one side and sending experts to help manage the use of those weapons. Yeah. That's right. I mean, okay. that's It's right. just, you know, sauce for the goose is sauce for the gander. Is I'm that bummed. an expression that no one is going I, to understand? I've never heard that fun- before. What, what's sauce heard, for the goose is sauce for the gander. I've
1: heard what's good for the goose is good for the gander.
0: Oh, I guess the same
1: thing. Yeah. Same thing.
0: Yeah. Uh, yeah. We are going to talk about that. We were going to talk about uh, a really horrifying um, uh, attack on migrants in the desert in Mexico mm-hmm. Uh, also, efforts—and this was not—I mean, this story just came out today, right? So serendipitous that we have planned a conversation about immigration. Mm-hmm. Um, but once again, we have the Biden administration trying to uphold actions undertaken by Donald Trump. In this case, an effort to strip certain groups of migrants from te- of their temporary protected status. Yes. Or at least— um, you know, the the Biden DOJ took this cause up and has been in negotiations with the lawyers uh, for these migrant groups. Those talks have apparently just collapsed.
1: You know, this is why I hate so much um, hearing Republicans and others on the right talking about the Democrats open border policy. I mean, there is no open border. No, there's no there's such no thing as policy. an open border. No, yeah,
0: not the, even if you're from one of our uh, designated enemy no, com- no, countries that we love to castigate. It doesn't exist.
1: Yeah. And Joe Biden's immigration policy is, for the most part, Donald Trump's holdover immigration policy. Can
0: I tell you something about uh, a story that I just saw? Uh, Apparently, so this is according to NBC speaking with uh, anonymous sources, but uh, White House officials plotting a post midterms legislative agenda for Joe Biden are considering whether changes to the immigration system should be a major policy push so they haven't given any details it would of course depend on the makeup of climate of congress mm-hmm. and political mm-hmm. climate very very cowardly um, but the push is uh, apparently a reflection uh, among uh, of an acknowledgment among Biden's advisors that as he prepares for a re-election campaign based on the slogan promises kept mm. immigration mm. remains a 2020 campaign pledge that is largely unfulfilled that's right so yeah if you were going to campaign on promises kept Oh boy! Come on, you better—you better, you better tr- at least ha- give the appearance of trying to do something about migration. That's which, right. which they have not even really been able to do. No,
1: and on the one hand, I can see how Democrats can say, "Well, you know, we're gonna we're gonna force votes, and we're gonna make the Republicans either put up or shut up. So we're gonna we're gonna push immigration reform uh, in the House." Okay, that's fine. But if you don't have the votes for it to go anywhere and you're reliant on a speaker, Kevin McCarthy, to schedule a floor vote, you lose yeah. and you look silly.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. So good luck with that policy.
0: Good luck. I mean, but also, you know, they did they did promise a lot of things to immigrants yeah. already in this country, yes. uh, and particularly, you know, pathways to citizenship. And uh, they they ought to never materialize. Yeah. And they, they really ought to be ashamed of themselves if they continue to pretend that that just wasn't a thing that ever happened. Right. Uh, we also have uh, Elon Musk buying Twitter. Yeah. According to him, it's, acquired yeah. Twitter. Changed
1: his title on his Twitter page to Chief Twit.
0: Cool. Yeah. <laughs> so, seems like that deal has gone through or will go through. The deadline was close of business tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Um Positively for Elon Musk, I would imagine shares of Twitter rose today uh to fifty-three dollars and ninety cents a share, which is almost what he agreed to pay for them. Right. So maybe so it looks like he may make some money on the deal after all. Or like maybe won't lose as much. Right. I, the other thing is so he he right. posted today this note to Twitter advertisers saying I don't want Twitter to be a free for all hellscape where you can say whatever you want and there aren't any consequences. I want it to be a digital town square where we engage in healthy debate. Da-da-da-da-da. Yeah. Um I don't know, man. I don't I lurk on Twitter because yeah, I, I use Twitter to follow yes. news,
2: right?
1: Yes. I follow lots way. of
0: news sources there. I don't really use the platform much otherwise. I am not a Twitter expert. Uh I suspect Very little of my experience on Twitter is going to change. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I have seen a lot of people over the last couple of days, you know, doing things like saying, hey, guys, hey, guys, let's all share your favorite tweets before this place goes to crap and we all have to leave. It's like, get over yourselves. Come on. It's also like the good old days before Elon Musk owned it was uh, Twitter being largely owned by Saudi Arabia's national holding company. Yeah, pretty much. And being used allegedly to spy (laughs) on Saudi distance. I mean... (coughs)
1: <coughs> That's right which they did all over the world not just here in the United States but all over the world Canada and the UK and the Middle East and everything.
0: Yeah, I mean I don't want to uh uh dismiss people who feel that uh be, you know because of some group they belong to they're suddenly right. going to be subjected to a barrage of hate speech. I just I just you know. No no. If that happens no. that'll be bad. I agree with you. Yeah, yeah. Um and uh what else we got? We, we got the Pope. We do What's the Pope up to, John?
1: The Pope gave a uh gave a Zoom talk to uh, not just not just bishops, but to the media, too. And much to the surprise of everybody, this is in today's Washington Post, uh, he, uh, he kind of castigated priests and nuns for looking at porn. Oh, no. And he urged them <laughs> to delete porn from their phones to what? avoid falling into temptation. He it, said that this is a vice that many people have, even priests and nuns, and yeah. they need to delete it. Um, The devil enters from there. It weakens the priestly heart. And he said, uh, dear brothers and sisters, pay attention to this. And if you can delete this from your mobile phone, delete it so you won't have that temptation in hand.
0: I think this is funny to me (laughs) because I I read this also. And it sort of seems like it seems also very possible that Pope Francis does not know really how a cell phone works. Right. He's eighty five um, years old. And he said, I think there's a quote in the piece where he says, This is this is not my world, but I understand right. you have to live in it. He said something about how he like That's used right. a mobile phone once and then gave it back to an aide. Yes. Um but like yeah, the idea of I mean, one, if you're a priest or a nun and you have, like, a Pornhub app on your phone, yeah, I, yeah. you definitely, you should delete yeah, that. Like, yeah, I think that's, that's a, I mean, I, I, whatever. I, I don't know on the phone back- I, a Pornhub app. I, I think there's an app for anything, John. There, you're, you're I'm pretty sure right, there's an app for right. a lot of these distributors. Yeah, but if you're saying, no, don't have, like, the internet on your phone. <laughs> and he says here,
1: I will not say raise your hand if you have had I love at least one experience of this. I love it. He also made a kind of a funny joke. Well... It, he meant it as a joke, but he said that he wanted to confirm that yes, he is still alive, uh, despite the uh, the wishes of many of his bishops that he were not alive. Oh
0: boy! Wow! <laughs> oh, Francis! You know, I mean, again yeah, there could be worse popes, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, the church is an institution. It's I don't. I, as I biked to work yeah. today, I I passed a couple of clergymen who were walking up the street. I'm pretty sure they were Catholic. They looked like they were Catholic. And I just thought, man, like, you just wonder what goes through people's minds and how much of it is sort of like real piety or just looking escapism or honestly looking at the sort of power structures in the world and going, here's one where I think I can have success. I'm going to choose this one because, you know, also whatever you believe, the church itself is also an incredibly wealthy and powerful institution with a (laughs) vast hierarchy. Oh, yes. And uh, and vast influence. And it's sort of it's a I don't know.
1: It reminds me very much of the CIA. You know, the CIA, a lot of CIA officers have a serious problem with alcoholism. And um, a lot of them, a lot of the agency's alcoholics in operations volunteer to serve in Saudi Arabia where there's no alcohol, they think. They, yeah. Right. Well, the American embassy is awash in alcohol. It has its own in, internal liquor store. Seriously, it's an actual liquor store. They call it the tea shop. Yeah. And um, they end up going there and becoming worse alcoholics and frequently have to curtail their their assignments and come home early. The Catholic Church has experienced the same thing, where people say, oh my gosh, I'm gay, uh, and I can't let anybody know I'm gay, so I better become a priest. That'll make me not gay anymore. Aww. It's the same thing. You know, I I used to go to church with my with my ex-wife and our kids, my ex-wife was Catholic and I'd I'd go to her church every once in a while. And one of the sermons was this poor priest who I didn't really like anyway, but his whole sermon was about how he's gay, but he can't say he's gay, he can't act on being gay, and how this life is so difficult. But but it makes him stronger to deny himself. And this is what we all have to do to deny ourselves. And I'm like, are you friggin' kidding me? Mm. It's and this sad. is in front of 500 people. Yeah. So, I don't know. There are all kinds of problems in Wasn't these big organizations. that's basically my
0: understanding that any private all-male gathering in yeah. Saudi Arabia is going to have a lot of alcohol. It's going Unless be, you happen to be among yeah, a group of, like, actually pious people. That's right. Yeah. That's pretty funny. Um A couple other pieces of news. Oh, just a little tidbit about the U.N. saying there's no credible pathway to a (laughs) 1.5 degree uh, increase in global temperature. The U.N. issued this report earlier this week on how countries, um, well, it was on how countries are doing with regard to updated climate goals. Yes. Uh, Countries were supposed to update their climate This is based on the Paris uh, Climate Accord, right? And based on COP26. Right, and COP, yes. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, They have not, right? Most countries have not. Uh, And so it it issued a report saying, like, you guys guys said you were at least going to, like, re-examine what your goals should be, and you haven't done that. And uh, also— you know, this is this is bad. Uh, and so, yeah, it, there's no credible pathway to this sort of minimum warming threshold that I think was really always it was always the we cross our fingers and and hope number. Yes. Um, but it, the report has also said, uh, you know, that people people are going to need to actually come up with goals and meet them in a very short window of time if we want to avoid uh, a temperature increase of greater yeah. than two and a half degrees Celsius. That's right. Yeah. So, we have a long, long way to go. We're going to talk about this in more detail next week. It's just one of these things where, like, I mean, COP26 was such a—I don't even know if disappointment is the right word, because at this point I don't I don't know who really is going into these conferences with a, with a lot of right. uh, genuine hope. For progress, but even that, it was just such a sort of cynical exercise. And now the world has rediscovered its uh, love for and appetite for fossil fuels. Yes, Uh, you have people arguing like, "Yeah, sure." What Tom Friedman in in the New York uh, Times the other week was saying, "Sure, I want, I want to go to all renewable. I want this. I want that." But we we got to do, you know, we got to do X, Y, and Z, and it always involves, uh, (laughs) not only involves uh, continuing to extract. And use fossil fuels, but also making sure those companies feel like good and welcome members of the economy. Like, you got to—come on, man. you got to give them money and pat them on the head at the same time. You know, I got a push notification
1: this morning from the uh, New York Times saying that the war in Ukraine might actually push uh, countries to uh, explore more alternative measures, Mm -hmm. alternative energy measures. It's like, well, yeah, what do you live under a rock? Nobody wants to go back to coal or to the risks of nuclear power with its filthy waste. Of course, this is going to encourage countries to develop more wind and solar and and, uh, hydrogen uh, power. I couldn't believe what a silly headline that was.
0: Another thing that's going on right now is there's a smokeout in front of the Russian embassy here in D.C. to protest Brittany Griner's uh, continued imprisonment. In Russia, it's organized by you know long-standing marijuana policy advocates here. Yeah, yeah. And as one of them says, uh, just as it's unacceptable for Americans to sit behind bars for simple possession of cannabis, it's unacceptable for an American sitting in a Russian gulag. And so we feel (sighs) compelled to protest the Russian. I mean, fair enough. You know, like again, saying this is we find this unacceptable wherever we encounter it, and we are going to protest it wherever we encounter it. They protest marijuana policy here. Uh, all the time. So, you know, fair enough. Uh, But the gulag thing was sort of funny and reminded me. I played you this clip. Man, NPR's podcast this morning. (laughs) Oh, boy. Absolutely hilarious. They they have a little thing. You know, they they cover a bunch of different topics and they happen to mention, uh, as we've mentioned this week, Russia doing uh, nuclear defense drills. And it includes a (laughs) snippet of I guess that it was sent by Russia to say, like, here's a, you know, because you alert other nations when you're doing the drill and here's the drill. Here's what we've done, whatever. And so they say, NPR says, like, so here's here's a clip of uh, what they sent. And you just hear some beeps, yeah, beep, beep, beep. And yeah. some words in Russian. Yeah, and then like three it, or and, four
1: words in Russian. Yeah,
0: That's it. three or four words in Russian. Some beeps, and uh, the NPR host comes back and says ominous sounds, and you're like, "What is this? Why? Why is it? It's a. It's some beeps." You know, I've told you before. And then, I, and then the Russian language, which this, is this obviously is what, what is ominous. Here. This yeah. is
1: what we do here. I remember, I remember back in in the late 1980s, watching some sporting event on TV. It was like race cars or something like that. And one of the drivers was Russian, and his race car was called Glasnost, right? Scary. Yeah. Well, the announcer <laughs> says, and here's the Russian. His car is called Glasnost, which means domination. <laughs> it's like, what? <laughs> what are you
0: talking about? Uh, that's very I'll good. never forget it. That's beautiful. Yeah. Somebody... Amazing. All right. We, we've got our next guest and we've got a lot of foreign policy to get into. So we're going to take a quick break here on Political Misfits. We're on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. We'll be right back.
1: This on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. President Vladimir Putin today gave a major speech at the Valdai Club. That's a Moscow think tank. Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov said that the speech was entitled, quote, A post-hegemonic world, justice and security for everyone, unquote. Peskov told journalists this morning... Quote, the speech is the main event of the day, which for sure will have to be analyzed, read, and reread in the coming days. unquote. The meeting was attended by 111 experts, politicians, diplomats, and economists from 41 countries. We'll have more for you on the speech as we learn it. There was a funny, odd, not funny, haha, conclusion from uh, CNN today on Russia and nuclear weapons. Russian ambassador to the United States, Andrei Kellen, told CNN... Yesterday, that Russia will not use nuclear weapons, period. It doesn't get any more absolute than that. But then CNN says, quote, On the same day, Vladimir Putin led a training exercise practicing the delivery of a massive nuclear strike, unquote. What CNN didn't say was that the United States is currently also holding nuclear exercises for a massive nuclear strike. In other news, Chinese President Xi Jinping said, that he is willing to work with the United States to the benefit of both countries. This is in advance of what could be a short meeting between Xi and President Biden at the G20 summit in Indonesia, and despite anti-Chinese hysteria in the U.S. And large-scale protests continue in Iran, 40 days after the death of Masa Amini, who died in the custody of the morality police after being arrested for having her hair uncovered. A Norway-based human rights organization says that at least 234 people have been killed in the protests, including 29 children, and thousands have been arrested. The Iranian government has called the protests riots and has blamed foreign agitators. Notably, Iran has not yet called out the elite Revolutionary Guard Corps. And as an aside, gunmen attacked a major Shia Muslim holy site in Iran yesterday, killing 15 people. The government blamed ISIS, and it's my understanding, Michelle, that ISIS today came out and claimed responsibility for the attack. Hmm. ISIS has been increasingly active in the country and may have entered from Afghanistan. We're joined today by Dr. David Wolalu. He's an international geopolitical consultant, global speaker, author, veteran, and former international security analyst in Washington, D.C. He's the host of Geopolitics and Conflict on YT, and his latest book is called The Dynamics of Russia's Geopolitics Remaking of the Global Order. David, welcome back. It's been a while.
2: Good to be with you, John. I'm here.
1: Happy to have you. Let's begin with the Russia Ukraine conflict. We've heard over the past week from a variety of sources that Russia is willing to have a conversation with Ukraine at least about a ceasefire, but that the Ukrainians are not interested. Do you think the Ukrainians are truly not interested or is this pressure from the United States?
2: <laughs> I have to laugh at that, John. Not laughing, I'm laughing. Laughing about the stupidity of the home statements coming emanating from Washington. We all know we all know, let's just not sugarcoat it. We all know that Ukraine has no sovereignty. When it right. comes down to decisions, uh, Ukraine will want to negotiate with the Russians, but they can't because the United States will not let them. Plain and simple. They just say it's straightforward. Say, well, no, uh, Zelensky not, uh, doesn't want to negotiate. He doesn't because he can't. When in reality, that's what Ukrainian wants. They really want to put an end to the, to what's going on right now. Russia wants to put an end to all this. Europeans now behind closed doors are talking about we need to put an end to this because they are now witnessing protests that's going on in Europe. They are violent and asking now for the resignation of certain governments. And this is why to those whom I think here in the West, especially for us in the United States, that uh, well, Russia doesn't want this. Hold on a second. Don't jump to conclusions here. Right. Because it's the United States that is deciding.
1: You know, just as an aside, and I'm going to be very careful with my language here. When I was at the CIA, I was on an operation, right? And I was with a, a station chief from another country. We were doing it together because I had replaced him in this country where I was serving. And we're doing a foot surveillance uh, detection route. And while we're walking around in this odd pattern, his cell phone rings, and it is the prime minister of the country in which he was currently serving. Okay. The prime minister called to ask him, who should I name as the foreign minister, and who would you pick as the chief of the intelligence service? And he told her who to pick, and she did it. And I remember, I mean, I was still kind of a young guy. I was 35 years old. I remember thinking, my God, we have that kind of influence. I know. I'm listening. I'm just speechless. I'm just staring at The shot. guy's speechless a GS-15. It yeah. It's not like he's yeah. Tony Blinkett. Yeah. But, wow. But I think David here is is absolutely correct that it, this isn't up to the Ukrainians to decide if there are going to be ceasefire talks. This is up to the Pentagon and the State Department.
0: No, no, no. A hundred billion dollars doesn't buy you anything these days. Right.
1: Right. David, we don't know yet the details of President Putin's speech today, but it seems from the title that he's addressing the issue of multipolarity, something that the US doesn't seem to accept. At least not yet. Let's look beyond the conflict in Ukraine and address the issue of a multipolar world. How do we get past unilateral actions by the US that cause conflict? Looking back to the first Gulf War, the Iraq War, the Afghanistan War. What gets us to a point where the U.S. is not the global arbiter of who does what where?
2: Well, it's because just uh, the short answer first before I comment on the speech is that we say one thing and do another. Usually when you do that and you act on the global stage in that manner, you lose credibility. That is the key issue that is going on with our sort of ill-conceived and, uh, and, and failed foreign policies that we've been having for the last 30 years anyway. So, But the mm-hmm. speech, which I can tell you something that came under my radar from some other of my sources, is this This is a, a pursuant to the speech that took place uh, uh, during the meeting of the head of security agencies in the Commonwealth, uh, in, which oh. includes the former. Yes, that's what it was. Usually uh, does not get reported much here in the West. hmm but that's basically in which Putin said, and I have the quote, I had to keep it for my own uh, uh, use here, that uh, he said, and I quote, the world is changing towards multipolar world. But there are countries trying to maintain their dominance in various ways, noting that sabotage is among those methods as happened with Nord Stream pipelines. Quote. So you can just read between the line who which country he's referring to, which we all know is the United States. Let's just say it's straightforward. But also, this is an indication of the change will also be reflected, not just between the U.S. and uh, and, and Russia, but also now with Xi Jinping being granted third term, then you're going to be thinking in terms of what kind of foreign policy or even a relationship that's going to be between the U.S. and China.
1: Yeah. See, spot on. Analysis by David Walalu and John Kiriakou. We called that one. Yeah. I wanted to ask you, David, uh, about nuclear weapons. It seems that the American media, the government, and people have forgotten or never knew that the United States is the only nuclear power without a no first strike policy. It's also the only country that's ever used nuclear weapons. This dates back to the dawn of the nuclear age the the russian ambassador told cnn unequivocally that russia would not use a nuclear weapon so why the cognitive dissonance on this issue
2: well this one of course came on the eve or the eve of, on the heel of uh, uh, vladimir putin attending or supervising the uh, uh, exercises of the strategic nuclear deterrence force Uh, Usually this is where they conducted the simulations, uh, but this one was slightly different because it included simulating an intensive nuclear strike in response to a missile strike. So we need to understand Ah. as to why that is. This is why, uh, just for your listeners, when you read articles here in the West, you have to really check the background of why are they stating what they're stating without disclosing the full story, shall we say. And the reason for this uh, specific uh, exercise is based on what Ukraine has asked the the United States for. And what they asked for was some sort of an advanced weapons, another word for medium-range missiles. This medium-range will be in a position to reach Russian cities and all that. So Mm -hmm. Putin is putting a strategy in place through a message by conducting this simulation. That is the point about it. And for those who do not know, that this will give you an idea about Russia's military structure. Because it will give you a snapshot of overall military thinking regarding anticipated areas of either conflict, potential challenges, or security threats. That's where they are coming from.
1: Mm -hmm. I'd like to get your thoughts on the possibility of a meeting between President Biden and President Xi in Indonesia at the G20 summit in Bali. That's going to be held on November 15th and 16th. Certainly the two have a lot to talk about, everything from Taiwan to nuclear weapons to espionage. Do you think that they'll meet and if they do, do you think the meeting would be substantive? The reason I ask that is because at these big summits frequently leaders will um Meet on the sidelines. And when they meet on the, on the sidelines, it's literally like in the walking aisle on the side of the meeting room. And usually they say hello and shake hands and how's your wife and, you know, how's your, how are your kids? And then that's it. And they say, oh, they had them, they met on the sidelines. This used to happen all the time when I was at the agency.
0: Sorry, how's your wife just came out so passive aggressive? How's your wife? <laughs> Never mind. I'll tell you, buddy. You know, I don't know. Do you think this is going to be substantive in any way?
2: Well, as far as the substance of it, I don't think so. Given how we've been treating China, you can't knowing the Asian culture. You can insult someone and expect them to sit down with you. That just doesn't make sense. Not just in their culture, in ours as well. Well, with the policies that President Biden embarks is embarking on, in addition to what former President Trump did, this is now is not about an individual. Uh, per se, but rather a matter of policy. And given what just Biden uh, announced regarding the targeting of the microchip, you can just see how China is going to be recalculating its approach to how we're going to be dealing with the United States, we, the Chinese in this case, given now that President Xi has been granted the third term, that gives him cement his possession within the political pillage. Oh, that's one. And second, that will put him even further as far as what the ambitions he is intending to do. So negotiating or sitting down with the U.S. for follow-up at this point is irrelevant to presidency because he has much bigger issues to deal with. Yes, they could meet. I do not know for a fact. I'm still reaching out to some of my contacts to make sure is there any possibility to that? But as of today, I, I am not in position to answer that question. Mm-hmm.
1: Iran is having a heap of trouble right now with demonstrators uh, marching across the country. Estimates of protesters' deaths range from the government's number of 12 to human rights organizations' count of hundreds of dead. These demonstrations, or riots as the Iranian government calls them, do not seem to be abating. It's been 40 days now, but the government has not yet caught out the IRGC. If that happens, we'll probably see a lot of bloodshed. Do you think that these protests are in any way a threat to the Iranian government? Is there a way to settle them without more bloodshed?
2: I don't think so. I don't think so they are a threat, John, because Iran's government has dealt with this kind of protest before. Yeah, remember. I mean, we've been in Washington. D.C., we know how these things work. Where I see things moving forward now is with another issue, separate to that, but can be tied to it. And this one has to do with the Saudis now, mm-hmm. in that they might join bricks, which means what? Dropping the petrol dollar, which is going to anger the US. Right. One of the one of the strategies the US will have is to figure out something with the Iranians. To aggravate the Saudis, because we can always we we've been always playing that game. We can play one against another in the Middle East. Unusually, Middle East is known for uh, what shall we say the the changes of uh, lesions uh, between day and night that can happen so fast. This is where I see it going. But as to the Iranian government itself seeing this uh, protest as a threat, no,
1: no. So I would agree. Uh, ISIS is now claiming responsibility for an attack at an Iranian holy site that resulted in the deaths of 15 worshippers yesterday. ISIS, of course, is radically Sunni fundamentalist, and Iran is a majority Shia Muslim country. Cross-border attacks like this apparently coming from Afghanistan are rare, one or two a year. Do you think that this is a one-off, or is this something the Iranians should be worried about? Would you expect more attacks inside Iran from ISIS?
2: Yeah, they should be worrying about ISIS because the infiltration of of, of ISIS into Iran will have to be facilitated by some entity with major resources and also one with influence. And the way I see it playing out is you're going to have to think about what will the Pakistani government do in this case? Can they play behind the scenes? Good point. The U.S.? That's usually what I see it going
1: Oh that's a very good point I hadn't considered that. Finally David give us your thoughts on relations between the United States and Venezuela. On the surface of things they appear to be in something of a slight thaw. But that's only because the US needs Venezuela'n oil right now. The US continues to recognize the illegitimate Juan Guaido uh, as president but it has been willing to negotiate with the Maduro government on prisoner exchanges and on limited oil sales. Is the- <coughs> excuse me is this a temporary situation, so long as the U.S. needs Venezuelan oil? Or is it possible to build on this and to eventually normalize relations?
2: No, they will never be normal, because they can't trust the Americans. They're not going to do that. And what you are witnessing right now is nothing but just, as you, the term you use, temporary. Because what you need to be looking at, your listeners, that is, what they need to be looking for is the upcoming elections in Brazil. Mm-hmm. at the end of October, that's the second round. Now, if Lula de Silva wins the election, because one of his promises is to do what? Is to create a unified currency in Latin America. So why will Venezuela even jump with the U.S. in the same bed? They're not going to do that. Oh, That's a good point. How can you sanction a country and expect it to cooperate? That just doesn't make sense.
1: That is a very good point. Well, thank you for joining us, Dr. David Walalu. He's an international geopolitical consultant, global speaker, author, veteran, and former international security analyst right here in Washington, D.C. He's the host of Geopolitics in Conflict. That show is on Y.T., and his latest book is called The Dynamics of Russia's Geopolitics, Remaking of the Global Order. I'm sure Y.T. is YouTube. See, and I thought it was Young Turks. Oh, is it is it YouTube, David, or is it Young Turks?
0: It's YouTube. It's YouTube. Ah, yeah, I gotta I change that. I think the Young Turks are Young Turks are pretty garbage. <laughs> I'm changing no, no, that it's right just, now. It's just in a it's just in a, a little abbreviation, I, and I'm sure everyone listening understood. I've just I've just taken the opportunity wow, to tease I, and you a little I, bit. John. I just thought
1: it was Young Turks. Well, no, you set me right on on ye versus yay the other day, which I so, appreciate.
0: I'm here. <laughs> I'm, I'm here for you. Pop pop. It's fine. <laughs>
1: I used to be proud to say I was born in the last year of the baby boom. Now I'm ashamed of it. No. Ashamed you're doing great. Well, David, thank you so much for joining us. You're listening to Political Misfits right here on Radio Sputnik. We'll take a short break and come right back.
0: Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witty here with John Kiriakou, and we are talking now about a story that reflects the hazards migrants face in attempting to enter the United States. They're not just natural ones. There are a lot of man-made hazards as well. We are also going to talk about what the Biden administration is doing and planning, perhaps, on immigration, and also how some of these moves are covered in contrast to the Trump administration. Joining us for all these conversations is community organizer, immigrant activist and founder of La Resistencia, Maru Mora Bialpando. Maru, thank you for joining us again. Thank you. Uh, Let's start with this truly awful story uh, that I first saw reported in the Texas Tribune. It is about the alleged stalking, wounding and murder of members of a group of migrants as they walked across the desert near Sierra Blanca, Texas. Uh, According to the migrants, they had stopped to drink some water from a reservoir. They heard a vehicle approach them and hid. They heard voices yell in Spanish something like, come out, you, Mm -hmm. you know, expletive, and, you know, call, call them some other names. Then they heard the engine rev again. And so they went out to look and see if the vehicle had left. And instead, they were shot at. One man was killed, and a woman was injured, and the people who shot at them in the vehicle drove away. Cameras actually captured some of the incident, and they captured what the vehicle was. It was a truck owned by a man named Michael Shepard, who is the warden at a private immigration detention center. He was with his brother, Mark, who initially denied that he was in the area at all, then said that he and his brother were hunting birds, then ducks, then actually, a word I realize I've yeah, never said out loud. Javelina. It should be javelina, uh, I guess, javelina, but maybe yeah. it's javelina. No, no, you're probably javelina. Right. Um They have both been arrested and charged with manslaughter. And uh, Mark has, or sorry, Michael has been let go from his warden job at the immigration detention center. Um, these men have only been charged. Right? They haven't seen their date in court. Uh, they're. Certainly, there's enough evidence to charge them. Their story has changed a lot over time, and the crime they're accused of is is heinous. This is also not the first time uh, Michael Shepard has been accused of abusing migrants. He was accused of beating and verbally abusing people in his facility uh, as far back as 2018. This also isn't even the only shooting of a migrant in that Texas county in the past month. Oh, boy. Just this week, another man was arrested in connection uh, with shooting a migrant in the face. And so, I mean, yeah, these are horrible stories. They are sort of stories of individuals committing crimes. But I also suspect that they reflect somehow on on our immigration system. And so I wanted to just get your your comments on what you see here, Maru.
3: Well, like you said, this is not, Surprising. Uh, we've seen these horrible shootings happen uh, by the Border Patrol, the Customs and Border Patrol, uh, even shooting people that are not even migrating, uh, migrating yet to the United States. Mexicans that are on the other side wow. being shot at by uh, Border Patrol. And yet what is surprising about this story is that someone actually got charged. That is what is the surprising thing. With evidence, we have never seen someone actually being taken uh, to this process that we as immigrants are taken to all the time um, by being prosecuted. Um, But I think that it also, uh, what is important about this story is that the the background of this guy, right, being the warden of a detention center. And and what he did to to migrants is also not surprising. Remember uh, um, the sheriff Arpaio? In our, yeah, that abused uh, constantly and humiliated people so this is a common denominator across all detention centers in the in the country. Remember, let's have uh, that. We have uh, over 200 detention centers in the entire country and most of them are privately run or they are um, they have some sort of contract uh, county jails with uh, immigration customs enforcement. So this tells you how punitive the system is, how entitled these people feel to mistreat people, and in this case, even entitled to shoot at people that are, uh, you know, out and about. Um, and so I think that the surprising part here is definitely
0: the fact that he was charged. Yeah, I mean, shooting at people and then leaving. Yeah, leaving. It's just, I mean, poor to shoot brother, at people in the first place, but then just yeah, leaving people for dead. His brother was in the
1: car. Yeah. And said, "Did you get him?" Yeah. As they were driving away.
0: Yeah, yeah. Sickly. I mean, I think, yeah, the fact that he's involved, you know, this isn't sort of, <laughs> I guess that there is a professional connection here, I think is what makes it most horrifying. But as Mario points out, you know, uh, he's alleging there have been incidents where, where it's been Border Patrol themselves doing this. Right? And so, yeah, yeah, I don't know if it's, th- these are the kinds of people uh, these jobs attract or that these are the kinds of people these jobs end up making, you know. Maru, I also wanted to ask you about uh, this is something that I just learned about today, which is this court battle between the U.S. federal government and several groups of immigrants who had been granted temporary protected status in the United States and want that status to be extended. More than 300,000 immigrants from El Salvador, Honduras, Nicaragua and Nepal are seeking in federal court to extend their temporary protected status, uh, which many have held for decades. The lawyers for the immigrants and the Biden administration have been negotiating over this status since June 2021, but talks collapsed this week and lawyers say they are going to return to court. So what happened was the Trump administration attempted to end temporary protected status for Salvadorans, Haitians and some other groups, but that attempt was blocked by courts in 2018 uh, the court said this is typical for the Trump administration. The court said, you haven't given us any reason to do this thing. Right. You haven't given us an explanation. You haven't provided any evidence that situations in those countries have changed so much that you can send people back. And because this is Donald Trump and uh, this uh, followed his uh, i hate using euphemisms like this, but his uh, crap hole countries right. <laughs> comments, uh, the judge said there's enough evidence to suggest that these decisions were motivated primarily by uh, racial bias, that we got to leave it alone and continue to investigate. So the block of what the Trump administri- administration tried to do uh, was overruled. The immigration immigrant families appealed. And in that par- process, they've been negotiating with the Biden administration. Because, of course, when the Biden administration took office, Biden's DOJ took up the case. This is Joe Biden who had promised on the campaign tra- trail to protect these migrants and other immigrants, uh, saying Donald Trump's decisions were politically motivated and that they would be disastrous for people who, again, have lived in the United States for years, perhaps for decades. And so lawyers for these immigrants are saying they are shocked that talks with this administration has collapsed. Uh, and so, Mario, I want to ask, You know, are are you shocked that these talks have collapsed? And, and, you know, what does this case say uh, about, you know, what the Biden administration really has done with regard to immigration since coming in?
3: Well, definitely not shocked again. Um, This is not the only um, lawsuit uh, that the Biden administration has continued after the Trump administration left. Yeah. Uh, we had California ID 32, the law that prohibited private detention centers in California that um, Trump administration uh, filed against. They left. Biden continued that. And now, actually, California lost. We actually, in the midst of a lawsuit against ICE for freedom of speech. And um, that happened during the Trump administration, and Biden took over. And Biden continues yeah. this instead of us actually negotiating with us. They also refused. And this is another example uh, that Biden and, and their promise, the promises in the campaign are just that, promises. Mm-hmm. Just look what they also did in regards to um, possession of marijuana. They, they pardon people for that, except if you're an undocumented immigrant, if, you're, if you are uh, in deportation proceeding. And having over 300,000 people that are right now legally in the country that can work, that have a work permit, that have a life, to all of the sudden not have that anymore, put them in the path of deportation proceeding, when right now we have over 30,000 people in detention alone. This is double the amount of people uh, as to when Trump left. When Trump left office, there were 15,000 people in detention. Now under Biden, we have double that. Plus, we have over 300,000 people alone in digital surveillance. That means They are right now being in deportation proceedings, and they're being monitored and surveillance, being tracked by eyes through private technology that is being contracted by Immigration Customs Enforcement. This is what the Biden administration has done. And it's really hard right now in the midst of midterms when we see the right-wing Republicans, you know, ultra-right-wing Republicans, racist, xenophobic. Uh, misogynist, uh, homophobic, running for office and telling people don't vote for those when they say, yeah, and what has the Democrats uh, party has done for us when we see these kind of decisions and this kind of fight from the Biden administration against our efforts to stay in the country and to have fairness. I think yeah. it's very clear that the Biden administration has not really done many different things than uh, what we had with the Trump administration.
0: I hadn't. Honestly, I hadn't even heard of California AB 32, this law that would have allowed the state uh, to phase out private immigration detention centers. I want to ask, you know, I I sort of I, I have a guess as to well trying to figure out how to say something that I I actually don't know how to express. But why uh, do you think there is a a meaningful difference between privately run detention centers and government run detention centers? Right. I guess. Why is the focus first on uh, private detention centers? Is it just because they are sort of easier to go after or is is there a real difference in how migrants are treated there?
3: Well, I think that the difference is that uh, these corporations make a lot of money. So that's yeah. a motivation, right? There's, there's, there's the motivation of profit. Therefore, there's more private detention centers than uh, governmental detention centers. So if we're able to end private detention, we can actually shut down three quarters of detention.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, we have actually, in, in my state, in Washington State, we modeled uh, our law, HB 1090, that we passed last year on AB 32. Now that we lost AB thirty two, we are going to lose HB ten ninety in our in our state. We also um, wanted a law that our state said yes. We don't want this kind of business, nor nor private detention, nor private prisons for adults for profit. We don't want that. Now we are not going to have that because of AB thirty two. But also in states such as California, Oregon, and Washington, and others, Illinois, we have also passed laws that prevent that our county jails contract with ICE. So in that sense, we're also advancing the fight to end detention of migrants uh, in, in governmental-run facilities. Let me tell you, ICE doesn't want to run facilities themselves, detention facilities, because they don't want to deal with the problems. right? It's easy for them to blame the company. Well, I don't know. something has Somebody died. Well, talk to Geo Corporation that owns and runs the detention center. I don't know. There's medical neglect. Talk to them. Sexual abuse, solitary confinement. OK, just talk to them. So they don't want to deal with that. And also, it's actually cheaper, according to ICE themselves. They have said that it's cheaper for them to contract with a private corporation that run in the detention centers themselves because they will have to pay union jobs.
0: Yeah. I want to ask also about the some of the legal defenses or the defenses offered by the administration and, uh, you know, administration defenders who say, look, Biden DOJ has to go to court to defend uh, Title 42, for example, to defend this or that, because its interests are in defending the power of the federal government against some of these challenges. But then when they win, they'll do a good thing with that power. Certainly in the case of Title 42, that has not been the case, right? We just saw the Biden administration invoke Title 42 to uh, prevent Yet another group of migrants, in this case Venezuelans, from being able to uh, seek asylum in the U.S. by crossing the southern border, they get sent back to Mexico now, along with a lot of other uh, uh, groups from different countries. And so I wanted to ask you about that. You know, the the defense of Biden is always he's he's inherited these lawsuits from the Trump administration, and he's defending the power of the federal government, not these specific policies. But it doesn't really seem like, in a lot of cases, once that power is defended, that they roll back these policies.
3: Yeah, they don't. Um, I mean, another example is um, the prosecutorial discretion. Prosecutorial discretion is something that all local enforcement uh, have, agencies have. And under uh, when the Biden administration took over, we we actually negotiated with them to uh, have a memorandum that explicitly says that Immigration Customs Enforcement must use, have to use their local uh, their prosecutorial discretion. Plus, uh, taking in consideration some factors in regards to who do you detain, who are the priority for detention. Um, And they really didn't really follow on that. There was a lawsuit against it, whatever. We have a lot of examples where they could actually done themselves. Like I mentioned, right, the possession of marijuana, they could have included undocumented people and they chose not to. And what we've seen again and again, this is not only the Biden administration. Democrats, every time they've been in power, Every time they have both chambers as majority, plus the White House, what have they done for immigrants? They always end up, end up using us as their political pawns. They always end up promising and never delivering. And they still expect us to, to vote for them because the other party is worse than them. Yeah. No, I don't think this, this argument uh, falls true to anything.
0: What do you make of how how these moves are being covered? Compared to the Trump administration, I mean, certainly the Trump administration also had a lot of uh, inflammatory and often racist rhetoric uh, to, to latch onto when talking about their moves. But in terms of policy, I mean, yes, there are there are differences, right? I don't want to pretend they're the same, but I, I will say the the outrage that is generated seems to be very different between the two administrations.
3: Absolutely, that's something that we were afraid of. That. Once Trump left, uh, people might say, oh, well, you know, the bad guy is, is, is gone. The racist is gone. We're going to be OK. And and the entire system is a racist system. The immigration system is a xenophobic system. And so, and you're right, there's there's clear differences for sure. Uh, like I said, one is worse than the other. Uh, but definitely, we don't see the coverage that it requires. I'm right now in Mexico, and I've seen firsthand the result of Mexico collaborating with the United States in stopping migrants and mistreating migrants. And that's something that is not really being told. How the U.S. has also intervened in the Mexican government to literally run immigration enforcement. Um, and, and the other part, I think, that is even more, it needs to better coverage and better understanding, a better context, is in regards to the Venezuelan asylum seekers. Because the same government that is saying, oh, my gosh, Venezuela is such a horrible country, you should leave, is the government that is saying, no, you can't come in. So, no, they cannot have it both ways. And I don't think there's been a a lot of good analysis about how the Venezuelan uh, conditions came in the first place because of the blockade. Uh, And then second, yes, people having to leave for different reasons, including the one that the same U.S. government is creating the conditions for people to having to flee, but then being stopped.
0: Yeah. Maru it's always great to speak to you. Tell our listeners where they can go to find more about La Resistencia, uh, or La Resistencia, and your work.
3: Yes, uh, we are La NW dot org, and we're in social media as La and Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and now we have TikTok because we have to keep up with...
0: <laughs> <laughs> I think you're the first guest who's, who's said their TikTok yeah. uh, account. So yeah, first I guess one. we better get prepared for that. Maru, thanks for joining us. Really appreciate it. Um, we're going to take a break here in just a second, but I have to just tell you my uh, Twitter find of the last hour. Oh, good. It's Arnold Schwarzenegger submitting an amicus brief uh, for the Moore versus Harper case, good in the Supreme Court, and I still—I mean, I know Arnold Schwarzenegger was governor of California for what two terms? Two terms. Yeah, two terms, eight years, right? Yep. Is that other governors four years? Yeah. Uh, yeah, but still, in my mind, anytime I see him doing something, it's actor Arnold yeah. Schwarzenegger. So right. I'm like, why are you? Oh, right, okay. I guess you have. I guess you have things to say about how voting districts are drawn yeah. and whatever else. I have to admit, I've come to admire the guy. I. I feel the same way. And I I feel like it's a con. I feel like I've been suckered. I mean, he is a Republican. Right. I don't think. Well, I'll say I don't think our politics are the same. Uh, Obviously, our politics are not the same. But I don't hate Arnold Schwarzenegger. Nor do I. I I feel like, listen, maybe I should, but I'm just going to get through this life not doing everything I should. And i am one of those things that maybe I'm go. not doing is being really mad at, at Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> I don't want to be convinced of it. Listen, we just we cannot do everything, people. Yeah. yeah. Uh also, I mean, again, we haven't uh we haven't been following Kanye seriously because he's not one to be taken seriously. But, did but you he, see did what he did apparently yesterday. Yeah, like walked walked into Skechers yeah. with the shoe company headquarters with a camera crew. Right. And had to be escorted out by security. Yeah, they threw him out. I wonder what he was trying. Well, I wonder if he thought I'm going to walk into Skechers and they're all going to say, "Kanye, please come design for us." Right. That's. A, I think that's exactly what he thought. Yeah.
1: And they were like, "No, no, 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 you're not dragging us into this."
0: Yes, we are trespassing here, and we don't understand why. <laughs> yeah, we're going to take a break in a sec. We're going to come back and talk a little bit more um, about the uh, the U.S. war on terror in Africa, what the <laughs> results of that have been. We are going to talk about uh, Barack Obama speaking to. Everybody's favorite pod save America, uh, who, to their credit, uh, are defending what Obama said, which was basically uh, it's good for Russia and the United States to talk. Nuclear war would be bad and we shouldn't pretend the danger of that doesn't exist in this scenario. You talked about the hotline and,
1: and the necessity of having the hotline so that there is this regular communication.
0: Yeah. And we are going to get into the uh, third quarter growth figures just a little bit later. All that coming up here on Political Misfits. We're on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. We'll be right back. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Woody, here with John Kiriakou, and as promised, we are going to get into AFRICOM's impact in Africa, Obama's impact on Ukraine discourse and the midterms, the UN's potential impact in Haiti, and political education in the U.S., because I couldn't torture that into another parallel phrase about (laughs) political education. I feel like four was enough. We're joined for all these conversations by Ajamu Baraka. He's an international human rights activist. He's an organizer. He's national organizer for the Black Alliance for Peace. Ajamu, thanks for being here.
4: Uh-oh. Thank you so much, Michelle. I'm glad that uh, uh, I get a chance to talk with you directly. Uh, last couple of times has been John. Yeah. I'm tired of John though.
1: Yeah, I, I hogged the uh, conversation the last couple of times.
0: Yeah, it was my turn for a treat. <laughs> 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 I want to talk about. Um, I want to talk about uh, something that doesn't get a lot of attention, which is uh, U.S. military and security activity in Africa. Um, A map that was made public in 2020 showed that the U.S. had, at that time, 29 military bases across the continent. The U.S. has 6,000 declared troops there. Rolling Stone reported just this week that U.S. special operations troops deployed to 17 African nations just last year. AFRICOM just a month or two ago was bragging about expanding its operational reach. And yet uh, this year it it opened an office of security cooperation in the U.S. Embassy in Zambia. And yet, which is the only uh, sort of transition I could make, although this is not actually surprising at all, but yet the Pentagon itself admitted in a report from August that Militant Islamist group violence in Africa has risen inexorably over the past decade, expanding by 300 percent during this time. Violent events linked to militant Islamist groups have doubled since 2019. The increase comes mostly from the Western Sahel and Somalia, which is exactly where a lot of U.S. AFRICOM resources are. Um, So this this war on terror in Africa has gone on for about a decade. It hasn't gotten a lot of attention, but I don't think that means its impacts will be any less significant than uh, war on terror original flavor. And so I wonder what you think people should know uh, about what the U.S. is doing militarily in Africa.
4: Well, thank you. Thank you so much for that question. Um, you know, interestingly enough, the Black Alliance for Peace, uh, we have organized a month of action on AFRICOM. AFRICOM was created by the uh, U.S. Uh, military, uh, the Pentagon, and State Department October the 1st, 2008. Uh, so we use the month of October to educate people on the existence of this uh, command. Uh, and what is actually unfolding in Africa as a consequence, we believe, of this command. So what we have in, in Africa is what we have in other parts of the world. The, the, the U.S. Have the, has the arrogance of basically dividing up the entire planet into these command structures uh, where they are committed uh, to support uh, their uh, worldwide basing. Uh, with the objective, of course, to maintain the U.S. global hegemony. On the African continent, we have the U.S. Africa Command, AFRICOM, uh, that has expanded since uh, 2008. In fact, uh, we recorded that under uh, the uh, regime of Barack Obama, uh, there was something like a 1,900 percent expansion of the uh, U.S. military footprint on the African continent. Interesting enough, uh, while the stated goal of this command is to focus on this issue of, of so-called terrorism, we find that there seems to be a, a correlation between increased uh, presence of, of, of U.S. forces and <laughs> increased activity of these so-called terrorist um, organizations. And we saw a, a really significant jump. Uh, They really began uh, with the overthrow of the uh, government in Libya, uh, with the consequence of that being that uh, arms from the Libyan state uh, ended up, surprisingly, uh, in the hands of various uh, so-called Islamic terrorist groups across the northern part of the African continent, greatly enhancing their military capability. We all remember the situation in Nigeria, for example, that was really the most dramatic sort of explosion of this activity with the rise of Boko Haram. But we've seen that uh, other Islamic groups have also enhanced their military capacities as a consequence of Libya and other support they received from other various states uh, uh, in in the world. So there's been this sort of the the stability and the uh, peacefulness that uh, the U.S. government claimed at first that they would would be providing to various African states uh, as a consequence of their expansion on the African continent has not uh, has not emerged. In fact, it has been uh, been the opposite. So we've been raising the issue of Africom and, in fact, calling for Africom to be to be ejected from the African continent uh, because we see that there's a, this a direction there, there's a connection also. Uh, with increased U.S. presence in those parts of the African continent where you have uh, the most uh, 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 potential economically in places like Mozambique uh, and other parts of the African continent. So this militarization of the continent under the guise of providing stability, we find has no basis in reality and, in fact, has generated uh, its opposite.
0: What I think is kind of interesting I mean, in 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 light of all this discussion, is that uh, Africom? The the most recent statements I could see from them uh, were leaders saying, "Listen, don't expect a big budget increase anytime soon." We're still a sort of uh, you know we're a what is it low low force profile whatever. Like Africa is not in our national defense strategy uh, a high priority like Russia or China. And so, honestly, I mean, again, uh, this you you can't necessarily say with certainty that the U.S. presence in Africa has uh, created this, this increase in violence, but certainly this increase in violence has been concurrent with their presence on the continent. And yet the response is just to keep things the same, which sort of almost seems like, you know, well, you, you say— well, the, if the objective is to maintain U.S. global hegemony, it kind of seems like, well, they've, they've created just enough instability. That's that's about what we need, you know, which I realize is cynical. But
4: no, yeah, no, you, uh, I think you, you, you're right. And there's not been the kind of investment you, you would think that uh, that there would that would occur if they really believe that they were in a real struggle on the African continent uh, to maintain uh, their hegemony. But they, you know, they but 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 they are focused on the African continent. They just want to do it on the cheap. Yeah. Um, they understand that the states on the African continent are relatively weak, uh, and therefore, it doesn't take much to provide the kind of support that that you need in order to ensure that you have uh, uh, allies that are prepared to advance your particular interests and worldviews. One of the things we we take a look at. And and we suggest there's a connection to beyond the Islamic uh, terrorist question is that uh, just in the last few years, we've had something like nine coups on the African continent. And a number of the leaders of those coups, th- these are military coups, uh, have been trained uh, and have been associated with uh, the U.S.-Africa Command. So they are, they understand that Africa is in fact key, but instead of competing with, with the Chinese primarily, I mean, the Russians are there too, uh, economically and providing more help, more assistance, uh, better terms with the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank, they're using their, their what they say is their trump card, which is militarization. Um, and the result has been these coups, uh, uptick in activity in Somalia again, um and um uh, the instability is is quite obvious but they could not maintain their presence on the african continent without the neo colonial leadership on the african continent and so we focus in on that also
0: I also think it's important to remember libya uh-huh. uh, which honestly uh, uh, from what i can see Almost never gets a mention when you talk about destabilization. And what is increasingly uh, being mentioned as a as a you know terrible destabilizing factor is Russia's Wagner group. And again, it's just it is sort of uh, ignoring what has happened during our expanded presence there ignoring, uh, you know, the the reality of what the United States and NATO did to Libya and are still uh, doing in Syria and uh, and saying, no, 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 it's uh, China who's coming in and trapping these countries in debt. And it's Russia that's coming in and creating security issues. And I I, I wonder, you know, these are very easy narratives to have take hold because the U.S. is pretty undereducated on what our country is doing on the African continent. And I wonder what you think the impact of that could be.
4: Well, the impact of that is, is continued support for, for Africa um, and the difficulties that we are having in generating um, a concern about uh, what the U.S. is engaged in on the African continent. Everybody seems to, everybody, but many people seem to be aware of some uh, degree of a Chinese presence and even a Russian presence on the African continent. But when they are made aware of the presence of the U.S., uh, is seen um, as sort of a counter to the nefarious influences of the Chinese and the Russians. Uh, so part of what we have to do is to is to help people to understand the the very the complexities of the of the African continent, uh, so we can generate them um, uh, uh, more awareness and uh, can push back on some of the policies. That are being advanced. That, that that at this point uh, there's no opposition to in terms of expansion of of the African of the of the African presence, the continuation of not only a uh, training uh, African uh, armies but also African police forces across the continent, and uh, providing support for some of the most backward and co- corrupt regimes on the African continent. And the next phase that they're involved in right now too is also uh, propping up uh local or regional uh military forces or states uh, to carry out uh, u.s interests uh, in particular for example in east africa rwanda uganda uh even kenya um and undermining the attempts on the part of african states to agree, to begin to uh, attempt to uh, solve some of the issues like for example around somalia undermining those efforts and 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 instead uh, pursuing a military first strategy on the African continent that has the impact of more suffering and death for African people.
0: I also want to talk to you a little bit about the ongoing fallout of this letter by, written by the Progressive Caucus to Joe Biden Uh, asking for there to simply be direct negotiations between the U.S. and Russia, uh, along with the aid that we continue to send Ukraine. Uh, They immediately faced a lot of uh, online blowback, at least. They withdrew the letter. The Progressive Caucus uh, threw their staff under the bus, saying the letter had been sent out unvetted by staff. And now uh, it turns out that former President Barack Obama, just on October 15th, was saying very similar things, On the uh, Pod Save America podcast. And he didn't get called a a dictator lover or a peaser. But what he said was that we have to be clear and honest with Ukraine about what we can and can't do, that there are lines we have to determine internally, uh, that the US, NATO, and others have to take into account the risk of this tipping into a larger conflict. And he said he was concerned about a lack of communication between the White House and the Kremlin, and finding ways to restore that communication is important. It's not exactly the same as what the letter called for, uh, but, you know, there there is a lot of overlap. And, uh, you know, uh, Barack Obama, of course, is a former president, right? He's talking on a podcast. He doesn't have a lot of real formal power, but... It also, to me, really speaks to some of this. Th- I don't know the theater of this situation. And also it's like there's this black hole uh, on Capitol Hill, right, where the closer you get to it, it just draws you into support for war no matter what. And so I-, I wanted to ask you about what you make of this whole situation and now this revelation that the Democratic Party darling was saying pretty much the same thing uh, a couple weeks ago.
4: Well, you know, it's, it's really, it, it was really a shameful uh, example of the lack of principles among the so-called progressives because um, you're absolutely correct. Uh, Barack Obama uh, was making a similar kind of argument as, 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 as conservative as that argument really was. Um, and uh, that was, these were the points, some of the points that were in that letter that they then rejected or denounced. Uh, I think it, it really it really demonstrates the, the lack of vision on the part of these progressives, and why they tend to continue to be rolled by the neoliberal elements uh, within the Democrat Party. Uh, they're more concerned with with uh, the the so-called identification of that position with the growing uh, um, uh, critique coming from the Republicans regarding this never-ending war in Ukraine. Um, and that uh, they felt that, you know, this letter would uh, uh, associate them too much with that position uh, and that raising the question of whether or not that position was viable or not. And was it in the best interest of the people of this country as opposed to the interests of their party? And they decided that it was more important to support the party and the Biden administration than the objective interest of the country. Uh, and the people in particular, the working class people who have been bearing the disproportionate cost of this conflict in Ukraine. So it's, it was shameful all the way around. And I think it's going to result in it's going to be one of the factors that I believe will result in uh, the Democrats definitely losing the House and with the possibility of losing the Senate. But, you know, there has to be more pressure on these so-called progressives. To take firmer uh, and more consistent stands, um, but also my last point on this, it also reflects the real tensions and maybe even contradictions among the Democrats themselves in terms of the way forward on this manufactured crisis uh, uh, in Ukraine.
0: Yeah, they can't figure it out. I mean, they seem to be in lockstep with. Uh, we have to do everything. It, you know, we, we just have to be more pro war pro-weapons-sending, pro-encouragement than the Republicans, right? I also feel like it says a lot about who gets responded to, because as John and I were saying, I I think that this reflects— the pushback reflects a sort of online segment of the Democratic base, right? It's the segment of the base that cares a lot about January 6th and a lot about Ukraine, and I don't think it reflects most of the country, right? And mm-hmm. I, yeah. I just think, like, yeah, it's a, it's a sort of undue power in some sense that this segment wields, which is, it's, it's bizarre, and I think it warps our politics.
4: It, it really does, and, and and the Republicans seem to be a little bit closer to the heartbeat of the country. They, which is, you know, the the, the people are suffering, inflation. Is really is is a real factor, and and people are starting to uh, to make connections between the the inflationary pressures coming from the fact that uh, there's been no constraints on uh, on big uh, corporations uh, to raise prices, and they are making the connection between inflation and the rising cost in fuel and food with. The consequence of these of of the sanctions and the the coming from the war in Ukraine. And you know for them to not understand that and then to, to try to try to focus just on issues, important issues like abortion uh, and now uh, forcing themselves to take a pro-war position because uh, they they need to be consistent with the Biden policies, it is a disastrous strategy. I think it's going to not only uh, uh, result in them losing the house, but also it's going to help to to legitimize uh, rightist, the the rightist worldview and values. They are they continue to concede so much ideological territory to the more extreme right. It's going to be difficult to re- recoup that territory as a consequence.
0: What do you make of uh, Obama in the midterms, by the way? Do you think this is this is about as much as you would expect to see a popular ex-president on the campaign trail? Or has he been holding back a little bit?
4: I think it's I think it's it's about as much as can be expected, especially when we know that there's still some despite the, the public declarations, there's always been some some tensions between the folks around the Obama, around Obama and some of the Biden folks. Uh, and so they don't they want support or at least the, 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 the candidates on the ground, they would love to, to get more support from Obama. But at the same time, Obama doesn't want to to continue to outshine the sitting Democrat president. So it's about it's about right. But I think that this this conflict, the struggle within the Democrat Party is going to explode uh, soon after the, the midterm elections, The the progressive Democrats. They've got to uh, become really progressive, and they've got to understand that the only way they're going to be able to survive as the country continues to move to the right is that they're going to have to take more resolute, consistent, progressive uh, positions.
0: I want to talk also about the direction of the country, because there was some research recently by Pew that shows that fewer Americans feel positively about capitalism, which is good. Uh, but fewer Americans also feel positively about socialism. And this is true across the board in both cases. Democrats, Republicans, and independents are all less enthusiastic both about capitalism and about socialism. And I am curious what you think this says about you know po- political literacy and political education in the United States. Uh, I don't know if we should... Th- I think that it reflects a a sort of apathy. Uh, Maybe if you put fascism in the mix, if you would find where some of these people are going. Uh, I've seen explanations that this is the result of of allowing uh, progressivism and populism to sort of co-opt an opposition to capitalism that isn't rooted in any particular ideology. Uh, And I, I wonder what you think is causing these trends.
4: Well, I'm going to tell you, I see the trend as, as, as positive in the sense that that the, the, the questioning of capitalism uh, provides an opportunity for people who are committed to a, the, the socialist idea, the socialist value system to, to, to engage the public. The issue we have, of course, is that uh, that kind of debate doesn't really take place in the mainstream, mm-hmm. because people have those that kind of political orientation get very little airtime besides, you know, Bernie Sanders and the importance of the Bernie Sanders campaign, of course, was uh, uh, introducing, if you will, to mass audiences of uh, the idea or the at least the term of socialism. Uh, but beyond that, you see very few progressive voices, authentic progressive voices and even real left voices in the mainstream so the fact of the matter is, people are seeking out information, and that's a good thing because the the the, the current uh, makeup of this and in, in, in operation of this capitalist order is untenable, and people are going to be looking for options. The the problem we have though, is that the only element that seems to be accessing the mainstream uh, media and raising critical questions about the role of of, of of capitalist rulers, if you will, and that not necessarily capitalism, is the far right. And so that's the found the ideological foundation you have for the emergence of, of a new fascist movement uh in this country. And we see the consequences across Europe also. So the, the left in conceding these this ideological space, that confronting uh these forces, not being uh unambiguous in their language and, and and framework, they are they are conceding ideological space uh, that in that that ultimately is is going to make it very difficult for us to uh, to to escape a a, a phase of real uh, uh, fascism here in the United States of America.
0: I do think this is also possibly why you have the weird rise of the phenomenon of. MAGA communism yeah I don't know what that is yeah. like I mean long it's long lost
1: libertarians who don't understand where they belong it's
0: <laughs> very strange but I agree I think there is some hope to be taken from this because it seems like you know st- step one is disillusionment with, disillusionment with capitalism which is sort of uh, I, as you were saying it's that's gets a little more airtime, right? Uh, s- mm-hmm. Step two, sort of explaining what an alternative could be is the thing that I think is still kept really strictly under wraps. Um, but yeah, as long as you've got, well, as long as you've got, but you, know, sort-
4: Michelle, Go ahead. you know, Michelle, the, the, even that first phase, the, the dissatisfaction with capitalism is not even, it's not really named. It's a dissatisfaction with, with economics, dissatisfaction with some of the economic relationships, but The the term has to be made, I think. People have to understand that what we are talking about, and that's in some uh, 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 abstract system. We're talking about a capitalist system. And I think that's important for people to understand and begin to investigate what are the, what is the logic and rationale of capitalism? What are the social relationships within this system? You know, because that's how, that's where they find where they fit in. And and can begin to understand the contradictions of this system and be prepared then politically and psychologically to transcend this system.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Finally, I want to ask you, because I know the Black Alliance for Peace has been doing a lot of work uh, on Haiti recently, uh, imploring the U.N. Security Council not to, uh, you know, not, not to authorize another intervention. But apparently the U.S. Assistant Secretary of State just yesterday said he was confident uh, that a un resolution supporting an intervention in haiti uh, would be passed and that he was confident of finding nations to lead that force and john you made a prediction in our morning meeting that uh, it would be fiji would be a yeah. big part of that fiji. force
1: they do this all over the world they did it in iraq they did it in afghanistan the fijians uh, uh, Peace is very important to the Vijians, and so they're always the first in line to volunteer when the U.N. calls for peacekeeping forces, no matter where it happens to be in the world. Mm-hmm.
0: I wonder, I mean, of course, I, I would invite you to, to tell us again why the Black Alliance for Peace uh, resists the idea of this intervention and also whether it matters who who leads this force. If indeed uh, you do see foreign troops coming to Haiti in a quote unquote security assistance mission.
4: Well, first, we we oppose the intervention because we stand with the Haitian people. Yep. The Haitian people have rejected any foreign intervention. They said that they can solve their own problems if they are, in fact, allowed to. This intervention is a intervention to save the Ill- illegal government of Ariel Henry. And uh, we reject that. We believe in and we uphold the principles of national self-determination. Secondly, on the issue of who leads this this force, if it happens, uh, one we would say is an illegal force, even if it's given the, uh, um, the blessing of the Security Council, is morally uh, suspect. But I don't suspect, I think, that the, the, you know, whoever supplies some of the troops, uh, that's a secondary issue to what nation will be the lead. I think that um, the nation that will be the lead will be a nation in the Americas, in my opinion. Uh, there's a possibility that Brazil might uh, try to uh, to to reassume that position because they were the the leading force uh, during the first 17 year occupation, a U.N. occupation of, of Haiti. There's also the possibility that the Mexicans can play that role. So that remains to be seen. But whatever uh, uh, move they make in that in that uh, in that like, uh, we're going to be adamant, adamantly uh, opposed and would be and will hope. That the more progressive and left forces would also uh, uh, oppose it. And if it happens, uh, to support the Haitian people and their resistance that we know this time is going to happen.
5: That
0: was political analyst Ajamu Baraka. He's national organizer for the Black Alliance for Peace. He is, of course, the Green Party vice presidential nominee from 2016. Ajamu, always a pleasure to speak to you. Thanks for joining us today.
4: Thank you so much. My pleasure.
0: We're going to take a quick break and come back and talk about some economic news at long last. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We are live in D.C. and we'll be right back.
1: back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here in the studio with my co-host, Michelle Witte. The Commerce Department this morning released data showing that the economy grew in the third quarter at a sluggish 0.6%, which was annualized to 2.6%. The White House says that means that there's no recession. But 0.6% is within the margin of error and is subject to revision in the coming months. Consumer spending here in the U.S. rose by just... Four tenths of 1%, that's down from five tenths of 1%. Spending on foods fell. I'm sorry, spending on goods fell, but spending on services rose modestly. In the meantime, home mortgage rates have surged above 7%, and the European Central Bank will soon raise interest rates to try to hold off the strength of the dollar. In politics, the races in which there is the clearest difference in ideologies appear to be the same race as tightening the most. Pennsylvania Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman may have dealt himself a death blow because of his debate performance a couple of nights ago. In Georgia, a second woman has gone public now to say that Republican Senate nominee Herschel Walker pressured her to have an abortion. And the Arizona Senate race between incumbent and former astronaut Mark Kelly and Secretary of State Blake Masters is just about literally tied. Filmmaker Michael Moore is predicting a blue tsunami but he must be looking at different polls that I'm looking at. We're joined by Steve Grumbine, founder and CEO of the nonprofit's Real Progressives and Real Progress in Action and host of the podcast, Macro & Cheese. He's also a leading activist and evangelist for modern monetary theory. Steve, it's always great to have you. Welcome back.
5: Hey, thank you so much for having me.
1: Steve, Michael Gapin, the chief U.S. economist for for Bank of America, said this morning that we should ignore these numbers Because international trade, which is sensitive to a strong dollar, often skews growth numbers. He maintains that growth is slowing and that we will continue to remain in recession. What are your thoughts on this?
5: I mean, if you get rid of the fire sector and look at the real economy, look at what people are dealing with in terms of real wages and in terms of actual sales for real goods and services, I think you'll realize that the Gas and oil industry have have done quite well, whereas rank and file workers and so forth have not. So, while on paper this may appear to be a non-recession or a or a zero growth moment, uh, possibly even negative growth, it's trending negative, and they're forcing it with this interest rate hike. So, one of the things you said in the monologue is the strong dollar, and by them hiking up the interest rates. What they're in fact doing is causing poverty around the world. So when there's poverty around the world, they can't buy. So that directly impacts purchases for sure. So some of what you said there was absolutely true. I personally don't see us coming out of this. There's, without a a very, very sizable uh, influx of federal spending, I, I don't know how we avoid a significant recession. Short of them stopping the interest rate hikes and doing some tax cuts or something, because it's just it's just awful. I don't I don't see uh, I don't see a blue sky on the end of this.
4: Yeah.
1: So you think we're still in recession? Is it is it even possible to grow one's way out of a recession uh, despite high interest rates? Unless you just spend.
5: It, it really comes down to spending, right? I, I mean, just remember, and I'll I, I hopefully your audience and, and you guys will remember. Money can only come into the economy a couple of different ways. One of them is the federal government or nation's government spend that money into existence. And then the other one is people take on private credit and those dollars, which are just really bank loans, stay in the economy until they're paid off. So really, in order to avoid a recession, you really kind of need an influx of federal spending. Now there are some evi- There's evidence, and I think this is what you're seeing right now. There's evidence that during the pandemic, people paid down a lot of their disposable credit card debt. So what they're banking on is, is that people can go back into debt. Individuals go back into oh debt to fix this. So that's that. To me, is the name of the game right there: the elimination of uh, federal spending, replacement theory of credit spending. Credit which has interest rate hikes on it, and people who will then in turn do whatever they need them to do. Because you remember, the great resignation took a lot of people out of the workforce. Yes. So, by doing this, it it solves a number of problems that they're trying to solve and making our lives easier, but only stand in the way of that larger picture.
1: I want to ask you, Steve, about corporate greed. It's no secret at all that the big oil companies are making unprecedented profits. Shell announced this morning that they uh, were paying zero windfall profits tax in the UK, despite record profits there. Barron's and Wall Street Journal have upgraded the stocks of Exxon, Chevron, Shell, and BP to strong buy. Why haven't governments done more to rein in predatory corporate profits in this period of high inflation?
5: Well, I mean, part of me wants to say, why do you think, John? (laughs) But um, in in fairness, let's just be, I, I I don't think a lot of people really grasp the extent of the neoliberal framework of the way they think. It's a model. It's a system that they believe strongly in and to do what you would be saying, which would be the right thing to do. They won't do it because they simply need that invisible hand. They need the market to be free to do what it wants to do. They want people to believe that they too can become trillionaires, and so a lot of this comes down to the concept of freedom spelled with a D U M B, not the D O M version. And and that really is why I, I it's it's it really is ideological.
1: Yeah, I think you're right. Pew Research uh, published a study that uh, that Michelle mentioned just a few minutes ago in which it noted a decline in the number of Americans who have positive views of socialism 36% of Americans currently view socialism as very or somewhat positive that's down from 42% in May of 2019 what do you attribute this to is it that most Americans and I say this with complete sincerity most Americans don't have even the most vague understanding of what socialism is?
5: You got it, brother. I I mean, this is um, a—in my opinion, what you're looking at is society has largely been replete of any information about what socialism is. Like, when you think about what Margaret Thatcher's famous line is, there is no alternative, okay? Okay. This is the neoliberal framework for how they teach in schools as well. And this goes back to Milton Friedman. This goes back to the 70s. And they've only refined their practice since Reagan, yeah. then Clinton. And, you know, and on and on and on. And it's only gotten worse and worse and worse because, you you know, the ratchet effect, Uh, you know, where each each election cycle we have the most existential right wing Republican threat to face. We have to simultaneously support right wing Democrat candidate because to do anything other would be uncivilized. And so we get into this lose-lose position where it just keeps going further and further rightward, and that corresponds with what our children are taught in schools. It corresponds with, interestingly enough, if you follow the aesthetic of like journalism and theater and movies, all the things that are said during that period of time reflect the neoliberal order of that time. So now things that are coming out are reinforcing these scarcity narratives. So, Socialism then in turn takes on its this boogeyman effect, the McCarthy scare on and on and on. And there's still a lot of people, older people, generation that remembers Duck and Cover and remembers uh nuclear scare and remembers Sting singing, you know, uh, Russians and so forth. Right. So we've got a lot of um, you know, we've got a lot of people that genuinely just don't know and they have a a false attribution from what they fear to anything i fear must be socialism
1: exactly and,
5: and so that's it's just a it's just a big catch all it's just a big grab bag it's like you know i'm determined to hold on to the word progressive i don't want to give it up yes. even though it's been co-opted by centrists and yes. other very very establishment shills I know what it means to me, and I refuse to allow them to steal it once again. And I refuse to allow them to lie about what socialism is. You know, if you think about this, can you think of anything that a GOP blue collar worker would be more embracing of than workers' rights and the freedom for themselves to be able to not be crushed by the man? Right. I mean, to me, this is social. Socialism is really a, a description of the. I want to call it a spectrum because I I mean I'm I fall on the far left of that. I'm not quite anarchist but I definitely fall in that big SC word in there. Um, and, and when you think about it, it it, it being that it is a bit of a spectrum in terms of where ownership lies, is it total and complete end of privatization? Now you're into communism. If you're talking about kind of a mixed thing, you're talking about that dem social, you know, social Democrat type role. And it's kind of like a spectrum of socialism. So people are so dumbed down that they just think socialism means free stuff. I mean, on and on and on. That the idea of helping people realize, hey guys, we're looking at you, your family having a piece of your pie that you create instead of giving it to some dude who's out there on a freaking seven hundred foot yacht smoking a gohiba, drinking grandma. Exactly, Yette. Steve. I mean, <laughs> on Facebook the
1: other day, I'm, I'm a member of of my hometown. You know, I'm from Newcastle, Pennsylvania. Facebook page. That's what it's called. And uh, there's a very popular Mexican restaurant there that opened up about 20 years ago. El Canelo. My kids loved it. And they're all, um, they're all Mexican guys that, that run it or that work there, at least. And then somebody wrote a post saying, hey, I just went to El Canelo again. And did you know, one of the waiters told me that the owner keeps all of their tips. They don't get to keep any of the tips. And then somebody commented, "That's socialism for you." And I, you know, usually I ignore these morons. (laughs) But I wrote, "Actually, that's capitalism. Socialism would be if the waiters owned the restaurant." And I said, "You might want to take a sixth grade civics class." I couldn't help but to be nasty, but
5: But, people don't understand. You're sixth grade civics. They would be capitalists if they took their sixth grade civics class. That's the
1: problem. <laughs> yes. That's the problem. <laughs> yes, that's true. Sorry, Steve, let's talk for a minute about politics, if we could. I personally thought it was brave of John Fetterman to go forward with a debate against Mehmet Oz for the Pennsylvania Senate seat. He knew he was going to have trouble. He knew it. He warned us in advance. Um, still, though, this debate was painful to watch. Fetterman hasn't yet recovered from a serious stroke that he suffered in May. A poll released today shows Fetterman still leading, but within the margin of error, 47 to 45. What do you make of this race as we head into the last week and a half before the election?
5: The most troubling thing I can tell you about this race, it comes down to understanding the role of fracking in the state of Pennsylvania. Oh, my
1: God. I just Even said with- that yesterday. That You're exactly right. Yes,
5: You're exactly right. It is... It is one hundred percent a misunderstanding of what's going on here. I, I've worked around roadways, I, I it, within the state and um, roadway organizations, large, uh, you know, non-government uh, agencies within the state that deal with roadways, etc. And one of the things that jumps out is the Marcellus Shale. Yes. And so the Marcellus Shale funds a lot of roadway production in this country. Uh, Not country, but the state. State. And as a result of that, you know that the very, very heavily Republican Senate and Congress of Pennsylvania, um kind of playing off of typical Democrat governor. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, they can't they can't pass anything to fund schools. They can't raise property taxes and they can't do any form of tax change in this state at all, zero. The only thing that they can get a little truck from is possibly taxing fracking to be able to fund schools and things like that. Now, I want you to think about that for a minute. Is the most disgraceful, disgusting thing to think that we, whatever you tax, you legitimize. So if you're going to fund programs based on fracking, that means you've got to hope to God that fracking stays in place. If you're going to tax billionaires to fund programs, that means you sure as hell better hope those billionaires stay billionaires so they can continue to fund your program. Otherwise, they, they're done. It's over, right? And so what ends up happening in this state, because we're fighting for a Green New Deal, we're fighting for climate change. You know, crisis here. We're fighting to build a, a society that understands the inequality we've done to the whole world with our massive energy consumption in the global north while simultaneously pilfering the global south. We know these things. And yet, in order to give our kids and everything else something, we have to find a way to fund schools. And so they've come up with this thing with fracking. And it is horrible. Uh, and and it's a in a, an impossible situation to navigate because they're fracking. And unless you can ban fracking, which there's no energy for in this state, right. as you know. Right. Unless you can ban it, the only thing they can do is tax it and hope they can find some silver lining out of this horrific thing. Now I am for banning fracking altogether, by the way. And I'm also for having federal funding only because as you know, I am a modern monetary theory. Guy, I yes. know the. Sh- it's impossible for me to process the to typical narratives without falling back to that. In fact, let me tell you, I went a step further. Yesterday, I did a a show. I stand by. Please check it out. On a real progress in action, where I talk about the intertwined nature of the military-industrial complex and the states. And because states are in this horrible race to the bottom, slashing and burning taxes, slashing and burning public services, they're competing with each other for the Amazons to come headquarter themselves in their backyard. But by doing that, the race to the bottom is complete, which also tells you why trying to fund big initiatives at the state level is stupid. Mm -hmm. But anyway, neither here nor there. In this case, John Fetterman is standing up there screwed from a stroke. Yep. He's literally trying to be the man, but he's got a lot of progressives rightfully angry at him for not being a, the climate guy that we need. Okay. Yes. And yet, here's this very, very real politic dynamic that fracking is not going away in the state of Pennsylvania right now. There's no energy for it at all. And you don't have your schools funded, and you've got a GOP Congress that is literally not willing to do anything. And to be fair, it's not just GOP. We've got a lot of conservative Democrats in the state mm-hmm, as well mm-hmm. who look and smell and everything else quack just like GOP. So, with that in mind, it's an impossible situation. And I think that's largely what you're seeing here with John Fetterman is that the base that would support him to keep this far more elevated is really disgusted by his stance on fracking. The flip side is, is that the other side is equally eager to find any weakness in Fetterman so they can put up Oz. And, um and I think that's your dynamic. And I think sadly, because Fetterman went out there, um I don't care about the good freshman try. He should not have been on that stage. It was evident in every way, shape totally or form. Um, he, 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 you know, For better or for worse, this is what we're now dealing with. So, um, you know, it'll be very interesting to see. Pennsylvania has always been a very purple state. We've got lots of stars and bars and Harleys and all the other stereotypes out here, gun wrecks and you name it. And, you know, but yet at the same time, we've got some progressive people, people that are thinking about the future. But it's a very weird state. It's the weirdest state in the union, in my opinion. (laughs) And the most Um, corrupt. You know, because it is so purple. Yes, exactly. Oh yeah.
0: Exactly. More <laughs> corrupt than Illinois. Oh yeah, it's right. it's bad.
5: Florida?
1: Oh yeah, there's no comparison. Right. Steve, you're in Pennsylvania, are you not?
5: I am indeed. Yeah. I'm right in this the capital out here in Harrisburg. I thought
1: so. I thought so. Well, moving on to uh to Georgia. A Fox News poll this morning shows Georgia Senator Raphael Warnock leading Herschel Walker 49-45. 538.com has Warnock ahead 47-45. But Georgia is a runoff state, and if neither candidate gets 50 percent, there's a runoff election in December. Um, there was news this morning that a second woman has come forward saying that Herschel Walker forced her to get an abortion. Where do you see this race going?
5: I think there's going to be a red tide in this country. Mm-hmm. Um, it's It's unfortunate. Uh, well, I say, you know what? I, you know what? Let, let's say let's talk about a dual path here. Is it unfortunate? Yes, it's horrifically unfortunate because the things that the right wing want to do are everything we don't want them to do. That's a true statement. The flip side is, is that the rank and file vote blue sycophant is doing almost everything yeah. we don't want them to do. Yeah. Okay. So with this kind of a, hey, we're just going to do the least amount of harm. We're still doing harm. And, and, and the thing is, is that we're, there is no, as you, I'm sure you're aware, there's no real energy for, quote, unquote, even an intellectual revolution, uh, much less a policy revolution. Uh, there is probably a bit of energy on the right wing for a violent revolution, but not the kind we would want. And so at the end of the day, I, I really genuinely believe that if this goes to runoff, the GOP is far more energized. Um, Biden has been a feckless president. Every chance he's had to slam the door. I mean, if he would have eradicated student debt, you, you would – they would be built, putting another head at um, Mount, Mount Rushmore, Rushmore with his face. <laughs> I mean, dude, for real, I, I I would bend over and say, let me kiss your rump Biden." that. I mean, it would be a first time yeah. I did that, right? It would be like, hey, way to go, dude. OK, now, the flip side to that is, is that let's look at it in a different way. Let's look at it as, hey, how do we since we don't have any energy for a real revolution from the left and we don't have enough, whatever we need from the left at this point, how do we mitigate harm? And to to that degree, there's logic that says, hey, vote blue no matter who, if you if you will. And I'm not in that camp, but I, I'm I can I can understand it. I mean, it's not irrational to think that way when you see what the other side is doing. So with with a Herschel Walker, okay, this guy, I mean, he he is potato, right? I mean, there's nothing firing between the ears there. It's ridiculous. No, no, nothing. The idea, the idea of him, of all things, this is one of the very few times where gotcha politics works. He is trying to say he's this pro-life candidate. He's this right-wing, you know, bastion of right-wingness, and here he is going out and you know, committing this, you know, you know, pushing for abortion. So it's kind of hard to, to wear that well. And for people that are truly anti-abortion, you know, they are going to see that, and I think that that will have an impact at some level. And. I guess the question is how many Pumas are going to come out and vote blue, no matter who down there right. in support of Warnock. Right. I, I think that's really what it comes down to.
1: Agreed. The Cook Political Report moved the Arizona Senate race from likely Democrat to leaning Democrat this morning to toss up. 538.com shows Mark Kelly leading Blake Masters 47-44. What do you make of the situation in Arizona? It seems like of, of all the states, this is the one that has the clearest ideological division between MAGA Republicans and those farther to the left. What do you think?
5: I, I, I genuinely believe that this is a referendum on Stop the Steal.
1: Yes. Period. Yes, it and is. And
5: I think that that in and of itself is going to tell you a lot about the mental capacity of our nation. Because, oh, I, I Look, I I think it's very, very hard to get too mean, if you will, to people that have lost faith in whether or not the voting system works to their advantage. I think it's completely wrong minded to be angry at people who no longer have faith in elections either, because it's not their fault that they've been duped over and over again and they're wondering, why do I keep doing this? Okay, why do I believe this? So, Take that a step further, which is always what happens in this country. It's not hard to believe that somebody would say, hey, it's probably possible. They just don't like Donald Trump. Everything was Trump fear porn when he was in office. Every single news thing, they lived and died off of his tweets. I mean, literally everything, the, the entire energy of the country was founded on chasing Trump's tweets. Yes. Now, some of them were really egregious, that's, but they were tweets. Okay. Right. So now here we are. I can see people, you know, kind of seeing Trump in a weird, perverse underdog way and rallying around that. I mean, who doesn't like an underdog? And, And so these are things you've got to be careful of when you demonize somebody who is really demonic. The further in you go and these vote blue sycophants, my goodness, they wanted to make sure he was. The, the poster child. Well, once they made him the poster child, they had the adverse effect of deifying. Yes. Him. And so now you've got to contend yeah. with a deity in Arizona. And so if the Democrats lose, they only have themselves to blame, especially those who are running around calling Trump cheeto and mm-hmm. tiny hands and Donnie, Donnie, whatever. Well, all yeah. the other, you know him. Oh, yeah. I, you I see, see it like, on Twitter constantly. It's not that they're not true.
1: Yeah. Yep. Steve, I have agreed with everything that you've said. <laughs> Thank you so much for those, for those insights that, uh, that was really fun. Steve Grumbine, founder and CEO of the nonprofits, real progressives and real progress in action and host of the podcast, macro and cheese. Steve is also a leading activist and evangelist for Modern Monetary Theory. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're going to take a short break, and there are no. some odd stories.
0: We don't have any time for a time. break. No, that conversation was long because oh, we right. love talking to Steve so much. you're right. I have an odd story for you. Yeah, tell you, me. Uh, uh Did you see that uh, their allegations a Miss USA pageant was rigged? Oh, for heaven's have sake. Have you seen this? Oh, this yeah. This is what we've come to now? Yes. No, they're, they're like— uh, the head of the Miss USA pageant has been suspended. Oh my God. Amid allegations that the competition was rigged. <laughs> also, apparently, her husband uh, has been accused of sending contestants uh, videos of himself exposing himself. Nice. And he's been relieved of his duties as vice president of Miss USA. Uh, oh but yeah, God. just scandal and chaos at Miss USA. And apparently, um, I, I think the competition was. October 10th, something earlier this month. And uh, even at the time, you could see that contestants were upset because some of the women walked off the stage when the I think the winner was from Miss Texas, I believe, when she was announced the winner. Wow. Uh, and so it's been it's bre- been brewing for some time. Wow. Yeah. Yeah.
1: That's what we've come to. Mike Pence said something really stupid this afternoon. No,
0: not imagine. Him.
1: He said that Americans have no right to freedom from religion.
0: <laughs> Why? Well, yeah. I think that's what the right is. <laughs> I think that is a basi- a very basic part of it. Yeah, he's apparently never read the
1: Constitution, which is not much of a surprise to me.
0: Yeah, I mean, we've right to freedom from religion in the sense of uh, theocratic rule. That's what it's right. supposed to be about. Again, exactly. not, not pretending that our currency doesn't say, like, one nation under God or whatever and right. all this stuff. Right. Our currency, but, you know, all our yeah. pledges No, and you're, you're right. But uh, come on, buddy. I know, right? Yeah.
1: Another thing too, you know, you remember this uh this college entrance scandal with uh yes, you know the, Aunt Vicky or whatever the mm-hmm, heck her name was mm-hmm, mm-hmm. from that show in the 80s. Um, well, one of the people that was caught up in it, this Beverly Hills real estate mogul by the name of Robert Flaxman, his daughter apparently had all kinds of problems. She got into drugs and she got caught cheating in college. She got thrown out. He wanted to get her into a halfway decent college. So he bribed this guy that everybody else was bribing and um, and got her in. And he got caught. Well, he um, he was sentenced to one month in jail and ordered to pay a $50,000 fine and perform 250 hours of community service. Um, he killed himself yesterday. Oh, no. Yeah. Apparently, he was so humiliated wow. by this that a couple of months ago, he began selling his real estate holdings. He sold all of his Beverly Hills homes for $34 million,
0: and yesterday he killed himself. What a terrible thing to do to your daughter. I'll say. think, like, these are the consequences. I mean, he made these choices. It's certainly, it's not her fault. No. Uh, No,
1: no. I mean, most American families go through something, you know, at some point.
0: Yeah. Right? I mean, also, I mean, I was about to be mean and say, what a baby. Uh, Do you think? Most weak. people who kill themselves have, there are probably multiple sure. factors at play and this pushed him over the edge. So Definitely. maybe we can have some sympathy, but boy, what a, what a choice. Yeah. And what ramifications. That was a tough one. Yeah. Also your boy, Bob Menendez.
1: Yep. Can't he's get big away. in trouble again. Can't get
0: away from the scandal involving his ophthalmologist uh, buddy. He, so he's now being federally investigated. Yes. For again. the same issue.
1: The same, yes, type of crime. Right. But with different players. Are they time. really
0: different players? I thought they were. Oh, no, it does not involve his former co-defendant and friend, Florida eye doctor Solomon Malkin. OK, I right. thought it was like the same. No, no thing. Oh, he
1: just can't okay. stop
0: himself. Now, I'm biased. I love Bob Menendez only
1: because there does not exist in the United States Senate anybody more pro-Greek. Than Bob Menendez. Huh, the guy is a champion of the Greek community, Greek-American community. Also allegedly
0: but, a champion of doing political favors for perks. And that's perks. <laughs> just not good.
1: You can't do stuff like that. So he's in some big trouble.
0: Yeah, we'll see what happens in the federal investigation. It was a hung jury that got him off the last one. Yes. Guess that's another story for us to follow. But not today. Nope. We're done. Out of time. Thanks to everybody who joined us. Thanks to all our producers and engineers here. And on behalf of John Kiriakou and myself, Michelle Witte, thanks to all of you for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.